Okay, okay. Hey folks, it's Blamo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. I'm back, and I am zapped. I just returned from Florence and Milan, fresh out of PT Womo, and wow, it was so good to be back. Incredible. For folks who don't know what PT is, it's it's more or less a, a biannual trade show in Florence, Italy, dating back to I think like the early 1950s. It was where the Italian fashion designers would show what they were working on, you know, clothing, collections, fabric, textiles, you name it. It has evolved, geez, it's evolved quite a bit since, but it's it's where the fashion community starts the slog of, you know, fashion weeks, because after this, there's Milan, and then there's Paris Fashion Week, and then New York, and uh, Las Vegas, you know, it, it's it's crazy, but I first started attending PT in, I think it was 2012, and like many people, have had a bit of a hiatus uh, during COVID, but this time, your boy was back. And Lordy, was it great to be there. All the homies, all the friends from, from Italy, from Europe, from, from Japan, from China, from the Philippines, from Australia. I mean, it, everyone was there. Of course, all of us got sick. Uh, I don't think I met a single person who wasn't already sick when they got there or who hasn't gotten sick since. Everyone got sick. We're all, it's, it's a big Petri dish of people giving each other hugs and slamming espresso all day. Um, I'm going to do a full recap on my trip at PT on the solo pod this week on Patreon, but enough about that because this week it's all about fashion critic, writer, Eugene Rabkin. So this, this was a very special episode to me. Uh, Eugene is, he's, I mean, he's kind of like the godfather of avant-garde fashion and he's an incredible fashion critic, uh, incredible writer. He's contributed to the New York Times, the Business of Fashion, uh, and he's edited several books, including the epic Stone Island uh, Rizzoli book, Storia. Great book, by the way, if, if you get a chance to pick it up. But Eugene and I discuss his life immigrating to the U.S. from the Soviet Union at a young age, how he fell in love with fashion, Nine Inch Nails, what streetwear took from avant-garde, and we also discuss the origins of his highly influential site, Style Zeitgeist, and what designers he feels are overlooked. This is uh this was a great episode. I, I wish it could have been longer. We got to do a part two because Eugene contains multitudes. But let's go ahead. Let's dive in. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Holiday season. I've been trying not to work, but it's yeah. it's, it's hard. It's like okay, come Monday, I'm gonna maybe put in one two hours of work, but I don't know if that's gonna happen. But we'll see. What's the day to day look like these days? Um, so oh, because I don't work in Antidote anymore, it's really just uh, a lot of writing and just communication with people and a lot of reading too. But it's good. Yeah, yeah. I've done. I've been doing some in styles like this, of course. Always there's always yeah. like pitches talking to people uh, thinking of like new things to write then the podcast then i started a newsletter which i thought i mean i don't know if you've had this ever but like in this weird uh, i'm in this weird frame of mind now where i have a lot of thoughts about what's going on about fashion culture etc but they're like it's longer than an Instagram story, but <laughs> okay. it's not, but it doesn't warrant an article necessarily. And I don't want oh. to be, you know, I don't want to be one of those, like, I don't want to be Refinery29, you know, where it's like 35 posts a day, right? Like, if we write something on Sales Eye Guys, I want it to be worth it. You know, I don't want it to be half-baked. But with this newsletter, what I'm trying to do is like, I have a thought. It's worth four or five hundred words. Let me mm -hmm. put it out there for like for Patreon uh, members. And there's response has been good so it's good i like it because it lets me be more dynamic and because why i love writing is like every time i write uh it basically systematizes my thoughts you know uh organizes them and also because i have an audience like i can't be uh flip you know like it has mm. to be it has to be considered like i like i can't shoot from the head even though sometimes a hot take is a hot take but it's always considered so yeah so it's been good well, let's, I mean, let's unpack that a bit, because I think for many people, including myself, there's you have like the influencer, then you have like the influencer's influencer, and then you have kind of like the like OG. And like for <laughs> a lot of people, especially in the I don't even know what the right word is. 
you know, like like the the the, the goth ninja, the avant garde style, the Art Nouveau style of <laughs> yeah. you know you know a, a higher level of understanding of clothes. You've kind of been the original source for a lot of people, especially for new enthusiasts and and people that were kind of discovering this, including myself. I mean geez, like a decade or so plus ago uh, mm-hmm. on, on Style Zeitgeist. So, I mean, I kind of want to trace some of these origins here. And I know you've been on pods before and, and you've, you know, you've shared some of your story, but, you know, where where did a lot of this start? Because you, you're originally from USSR, right? Yeah, from Belarus. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and like you came over here at a, what, like a teenage? Yeah, 15. Yeah. And so like where where yeah, did yeah. like your po- post, because I know you did a stint in finance and kind of hated it. And then, you know, you, yeah. you had a hard pivot into this, in, into this sort of like, you know, Art Nouveau sort of style. But like, kind of walk me through where this, where this created and how Zeitgeist happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, I made lots of mistakes in my life, like most of us. <laughs> and <clears throat> coming to the States as a teenager, um, especially if you're a Jewish teenager, you know, you kind of have three avenues or you think you have three avenues to succeed. You know, we came poor. And it's either uh, law, medicine, or finance. And I chose finance mm-hmm. because I thought it's the easiest. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, we came to the States, got to live the American dream, make money, all that jazz. And so I got my my first education was in finance. And I started working on Wall Street. And I was like, I hate this. It was it's really soul-draining. Um and part of it was the people, uh, and mm-hmm. part of it was the work, just the amount of FaceTime and drudgery and really not being challenged in any mentally, you know, into intellectually not being challenged at all, which, which sounds weird because people usually think of Wall Street as like trading and complicated stuff um what's the type of finance you're doing so I, I was like first started at a stock exchange i was doing compliance so basically like self exchanges have to self-police so okay make sure like uh specialists like don't break rules then i went into market data i was i jumped like every year two years just like trying to get my salary up ended up in the school right. company was doing market data like a bit of software like a bit of coding uh, analysis ended up in uh, management consulting, which was the worst. And so by then I'm like 10 years on Wall Street and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stop working until they lay me off, uh, which is what, and that's what you happened. Said you did, you did the, the quiet quitting, I'm air quoting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was quiet quitting before quiet quitting. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I was like, I, I used to just do crazy stuff before. My biggest achievement on Wall Street, I still say, is like... Uh, reading Moby Dick in its entirety during my office hours, just printing out one chapter at a time and making it look like I'm going through memos and just reading Moby Dick instead. So <laughs> <laughs> That's quite quite the book to choose, by the way, uh, when you're looking for stuff to do. Yeah. What made yeah. you choose Moby Dick? Uh, I thought it's one of the great American novels and it has to be read in order to understand the country. And yeah, I did. And yeah, it, uh, it delivered. So anyway, so that was yeah. my Wall Street thing and um, I hated it and I just said I'm, I'm not going this is not my life path so I enrolled into a um, new school for social research uh, thinking I would go teach literature to kids and then but by the time so I was so I had a full-time Wall Street job part-time mm-hmm. masters uh, like a one-year-old baby um, oh yeah so it was it was really hardcore um, and I started styles like guys sort of on a whim to be honest it was all the accident I was in fashion spot which was sort of like the OG uh, fashion forums. But yeah, I was yeah. working with these programmers and I was showing the forums to this one guy and he's like, why don't you start your own? And then- and I thought, yeah, you know what? It's a good idea. So that's really how Styles, I guess, was born. So this is like 2006. I'm finishing my master's. I no longer mm-hmm. want to be on Wall Street, sort of dragging my feet there. And uh, finished my master's, got a job teaching at Parsons part-time because Parsons is part of new school. And I wanted to write my master's thesis right. on fashion. And I ended up and they were like, well, we don't know what to do with you. You can go to Parsons and find an advisor, your thesis advisor. 
which I did, and then she invited me to teach. So I'm teaching part-time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm teaching part-time at Parsons, like running over to my classes after my Wall Street day is done. And then they finally lay me off. I'm like, oh, thank God. So uh, I'm collecting unemployment because uh, it was post-crash, so it was a little bit more than usual. And teaching part-time at Parsons and getting stalls like I off the ground. Um, crazy times, yeah. Uh, luckily, I had a rent stay stabilized apartment which really allowed me to live very very cheaply from this like hodgepodge income and then it's just took off but you know, to go back to my interest in fashion i've had it since my teenage years and it started as a regular thing just wanting to look good um i was overweight for a lot of my teenage years so I think I was compensating, you know, trying to look my best by dressing a certain Same. way. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I was uh, overweight for quite, you know, a lot of my teenage years and my late 20s, early 30s. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a constant struggle. Um, so I started dressing like that and then i got into you know, as a teenager it's like so this is early 90s so it's like listening to arena rock hair metal but then synth pop as well and then one day a friend of mine put on like a nine inch nails record the downward spiral and like and my entire world fell apart oh yeah like like i threw out my overnight like i threw out all of my hair metal i was like this is bullshit i finally found like this is the real deal this is like teenage angst, you know, anger, darkness, humanity, all rolled into like one perfect album. And so I became an oh avid, God. I became like a avid listener of industrial. I worked my way back through Nine Inch Nails, discovering like post punk completely on my own. There wasn't really, cause you know, this is, this is immigrant blue collar Brooklyn early nineties. So everything is about hip hop. Everything is about hip hop and there's some alternative here and there. Um, but not nearly as much. So I had really very very few people around me who were interested in this stuff but i so there was a lot of self-discovery self-digging and so i have these holes in my education still like it took me 20 years to get from joy division to the smiths you know what i mean so because there right, wasn't right. anyone around but anyway nine inch nails was sort of it for me and just like watching trent Reznor dress the way he dressed in videos, obviously closer, had like a whole. Yeah. Uh, I, what I realized was that what you wear, like what you wear is a symbolic representation of, or can be a symbolic representation of how you feel on the inside. So that was my pivot from like, you know, aspirational fashion, you know, Dolce & Gabbana, Versace, all the stuff that any aspirational consumer wears because that's your gateway signaling to the rest of the society sort of i am aspirational i'm trying to get out of the mock of life um yeah it was more realizing that the music he was making and what he was wearing uh was really of the same one you know, you know one, one and the same or, or two parts of the same thing and i thought oh yeah that makes sense and I want mm -hmm. to dress in a similar way to, I guess, on some semiotic level to project the stuff that I'm into. But also, I I always went like a level deeper than that. Um, and that's why I always have like trouble with fake dubs, <laughs> because it's never been just like about the music for me, uh, but what the music represents. And uh, I've always, so like musicians I love, I mm -hmm. hope, you know, I feel like there are values, like they're dissatisfied with this world for certain reasons, and they put that into their music. It's not just an aesthetic expression, mm. uh, that there is something authentic behind that. So that's what I've always related to. And, and that's why like I've slowly pivoted to wearing cheap perfecto jackets and black jeans i had my harley davidson boots uh okay okay <laughs> and all that stuff and so concurrently 
you know, my brother had a friend who was trying to become a fashion designer and he saw my interest in dressing. Uh, he saw that I was trying and he said, you should go to the store called Barney's. I think you really like it. They have the kind of stuff I think you like. So I, I went, it was like 98, I want to say 98, 99. And it just mm-hmm. blew my mind. I was terrified to walk in. You know, we're talking about the most prestigious avant-garde department store in New York City. So of course I was terrified. I'm an immigrant kid or, um, but I did it and that's where I discovered the Belgians and the Japanese. So like Andy Minister, like Dirk Bickenbergs before he moved to Milan, started doing his soccer thing. Um, uh, Yoji, Calm, and later, you know, uh, Ralph, C- Ralph Simmons, um, and a bunch of other Belgians labels that no longer exist. And then, and then number nine came along under cover and then Rick Owens. And so, so I was slowly replacing and I thought like, Oh, this is what I love wearing, but it's just an infinitely more elegant, better fitting, better made version of what I'm already wearing. And they, and better design, interesting. I didn't know who these people were. It was a complete accident. I didn't know those names. Not they're not really in magazines. So that was my the beginning of my rabbit hole, and I slowly started digging. And again, I'm all by myself. Like, there is no one in my immigrant Brooklyn who's ever even heard of these people. Um, and <clears throat> this is like fast forward some years. And then the internet sort of comes along, the forum culture comes along, and I'm in office Googling. I'm confident I remember correctly. Like, I was Googling Ross Simons, and the fashion spot came up. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my fucking God, my people. Like, there is someone I know, not personally, but there is someone I know who knows who Enzo Mimister is, right. who, who knows who Rick Owens is. Um, and so that was, that's why I joined the fashion spot. And that was really sort of like finding like-minded people, like, oh, they exist and then of course atelier opened in 2002 concurrently and that was a big thing as well um, well can you explain what atelier was for a lot of people because i think i i don't think people may uh, understand it the way that you and i did on, on on what it what it meant yeah i mean atelier is like the style zeitgeist in retail form basically right <laughs> it's a, <laughs> okay fair it's it's a pioneering trailblazing store uh you know founded um, by Carlos Steele and his partner Constantine that for the first time put together all these incredible brands that I was in love with you know Anthony mm-hmm. Mister and Ralph Simmons Javier Delcor and they also had Carpe Diem and Carol Christian Paul so that was they were my introduction to um, the artisanal side of fashion and they put it together in this like incredible elevated goth package nothing like that existed in the States you know and, and back then I had no idea what you know i think their model was like just on some level uh but i had no idea what that was because i you know i've been to paris once before that mm-hmm. i mean remember i'm not a fashion professional yet i'm 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 an amateur i'm a fan um so atelier became this temple um of this like god fashion where so many creative professionals gravitated you know and hear me like coming in like trying to buy a t-shirt on sale <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, uh, Carlo and I got along quite well and over the years we've become really good friends and been, yeah. So that, that confluence was very special. Then we had Chloe coming out in New York, right? Uh, Dior own blew up, Ralph Simons blew up and then Rick blew up. And if you search for those, what was the one place on the internet that you would go talk about these designers? It was Styles I guess that that's what it became. Yeah. I, and I think it's it's interesting, like, because one of the things I want to call out is like, for many people who love the brands, the clothes that, you know, you were starting to get into, um, they go to New York, right? right. They, they go in, in terms of the United States, right? So, I mean, obviously, like Berlin for a lot of people is where it's at. But like, you know, they would go to New York and, and here you are, you're in New York, you know, you're in Brooklyn and you're and you're kind of figuring out who you are. And there's, there's no one there. And I think it, it also goes to show the power of the internet and how it changed fashion in so many ways. I mean, and look, we can oh. talk about this for hours, but like the fact that you go to Barney's and you see some of these stuff and you're like, oh, I feel seen. Like I have a community. I mean, yeah. it, it sounds like, and I wrestle with this too. I'm not going to project this upon you. But like for me growing up as a kid that didn't have much money, I never felt good about myself, about how I look. I still wrestle with body image issues. Mm-hmm. 
issues. Mm -hmm. I weigh myself every day. I work out too much. I have food issues. I mean, look, this isn't about me, but like I got issues out the wazoo. And for me, clothing was where I not only felt community, but where I felt, (laughs) this is so fucked up, but where I felt that I could be better, right? Like 100%. I I can have taste. I can can be the kid in, in, you know, wherever I am at that's wearing Dior or that's wearing, you know, on or any of that other stuff and and feel like an identity. Mm-hmm. But I had the internet, you know, and, and, and you, I think this is the thing where it's like, you had none of that stuff and you kind of helped create this community for people like me and hundreds and thousands of other people who were looking for, who had watched a Nine Inch Nails video, who had watched some of these things and felt like no one knew who they were, who they wanted to be. And I think yeah. like that's something, you know, because uh, all this stuff is just about belonging. <laughs> Right. Yeah, a lot. A lot of it is about uh, it. Basically, it's meaning making. Yeah, and right. We, okay. We as humans, we need meaning in our lives, and that's and that's what that's how I find my I found my meaning. And obviously, for literature, uh, I know your audience can't see, but you can see my my bookshelves on the side here. Um, yeah, you have quite quite the cool looking apartment, by the way. <laughs> thank uh. you. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, no, one hundred percent. And for me. Like people have to understand where I lived for 29 years of my life. I only moved to this amazing apartment a year and a half ago. 29 years of my life. I lived in immigrant, mostly blue collar Brooklyn, not poor, you know, lower middle class to middle class. Sure. Uh, even a little bit upper middle class. But like you didn't go hungry. No, no, no. never. Yeah. But but super insulated. Um, mm. For me, this is going to sound wild because I've seen it so change. Like for me, like I didn't know that Supreme existed and I was a train right away. You know what I mean? Mm. Because we didn't have the internet. This is, you know how I discovered Soho? This is an amazing story. I w- it was like 4 a.m. because I used to go clubbing. Okay. Uh, so like limelight, tunnel, that was another part. Because like if sure. you listen to industrial, if you listen to post-punk, if you listen to synth-pop, like techno oh, yeah. is not that far away. So <laughs> like I would go clubbing, uh, like, you know, limelight, tunnel, whatever. And so I'm driving back and we all had cars, you know, with shitty... Mm-hmm up cars but we have them because otherwise the train ride to Manhattan is like an hour so I'm driving with my girlfriend it's like 4 a.m. and there's construction on Broadway and it's like traffic. Yeah, I think we're driving from Limelight, I remember. And so I'm thinking, let me see if I can make a detour. And I, I remember I turned on Prince Street, right? And I turned mm-hmm. on Mercer left and I'm like, what is this neighborhood? This looks <laughs> This looks pretty cool. Right. So next weekend, first thing I do is I jump in my car and I drive back to that intersection and I just park. And back then you could park in front of any storefront. And it's not like today where it's like sure. you circle around for half an hour and it's a mob. It was a really, you know, we're talking about 90, we're talking 98. So it's still full of galleries, mm-hmm. no Bloomingdale's, you know, very few chain stores. Uh, like instead of Bloomingdale's, we have Canal Jeans. Um, and I just start walking around and mm. I was like, this is, this is my spot. This, this is my, like, I had no idea this existed. And that's how I found if I was just walking by, I was like, oh, this looks cool. I walked yeah. in. Legendary boutique. Yeah. Legendary if boutique. You know, there's another multi-brand store, Baguta, uh, back then and a bunch of others. It was like, there was Autotutsi Plowhound where I bought all my Dirk Dickenberg's boots that are now going for like pretty penny, you know, on grail. Like kids are rediscovering them. And yeah, so that was, it was, really all blindly poking around New York City and just walking and walking for hours trying because I ha- I had that hunger like I knew that where I'm at is mm-hmm. not culturally where I want to be yeah what what did folks or family or like your community at the time think of this as your this obviously it feels like it's probably different than what you were used to right Oh yeah, one hundred. Um, what, what were their re- responses? My mom was. My mom was like, "Why are you wearing black all the time?" <laughs> it's like, like, what's wrong with you? You going to the funeral? And just, just that, like, really, like, narrow-minded, conservative. And like, what you listen to rap, probably, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, so it was, it was just a lot of that. And in, in school, I feel like people didn't really care because, you know, we had our own. It was kind of anything goes, sure. kind of a thing. So, so you, you discover these other brands, and you, you know, further along, you, you create styles like guys. And yeah. how, how do things kind of take off from? 
there because going from, you know, cause then you were writing a lot. I mean, I mean, and you were obviously posting on this all the time. Like how, how did you start yeah. making a living off of this? Uh, it, it happened by accident. Uh, a store messaged me. It said, Oh, uh, we want to advertise on, on your forum. Was this and Darklands? That, it was, it was Kamakina. It was okay. Campbell's store when he was in Vancouver. So this is before us. And he mm-hmm. said, Oh, I can be happy to advertise with you. And then the light bulb went on. It's like, Oh my God, maybe I can make a living off of that. And so, <laughs> and then other stores. So we put up the banner and then other stores saw that and they started coming to sell Zeitgeist. So I created this. Um, so that's how I started making a living off of advertising. And it was smart in retrospect because it was stores and not brands. So it's mm. retail, right? They're looking for consumers. It's not they're like brands because, you know, brands in that space, a lot of them, like they think they're too cool. Like they think they're artists, you know? <laughs> so sure. Yeah. They sure. think they're like too cool for advertising where it'd be like, you know, you, you understand that we are making you a lot of money. Like it would be nice if you yeah. advertised with us and like supported people who's been supporting you, but whatever. And, but that's how I started making uh, a bit of, and it was fun. And again, once again, like that brand stabilized apartment, that was really what helped me uh, like live inexpensively, but Mm -hmm. doing what I love. I mean, man, I can't even tell you (laughs) this is the best decision of my life. It's like, (laughs) I mean, you know, well, that like doing what you, what you love for a living, this is, that's the formula. Right. There, there isn't much more. Well, yes and no, right? Because yes, I agree that, I mean, like making a podcast for a living is is a huge joy. And I never, ever fail to remind myself how lucky I am to do it. However, there are things that are such a grind, like anything else, that you're like, oh, I don't just get to sit and talk to people and make this podcast. Like there's, you know, a thousand other things that go with it that are unadvertised when you get, you know, the quote dream job. And I think that that's something a lot of people forget about. It's like, yeah, like I still got to figure out health insurance. You still got to yeah, figure yeah. out getting paid and all that, you know. Um, no, 100%. 100%. Yeah. But it's like, it's yeah. such a, like, I feel like when you do what you love for a living, that makes tackling everything else. It's not secondary, but I also, I I feel like you have a base, like a lot, like a springboard from which I personally, I have so much more energy to do all this other stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like writing. But people don't understand how much goes into writing. And it's a real shame that so many writers, including myself, are so underpaid. But like people have no idea. Like you don't just pick up, you know, open the file and start like pressing keys on the keyboard. <laughs> there's there's so much research. There's so much reading of other sources. There's so and like, you know, I I, I take my writing seriously. Uh I just finished a big piece uh, on Belgian fashion and you know, I like I took apart like my entire bookshelf because i have so many books on belgian fashion and just the input it's so much no of course yeah it's true with people it all seems glam from the outside and it's not um but yeah being able to do what you love for it's just yeah it's been such a joke well talk to me about the writing thing because obviously style zeitgeist was in many ways early on it was just like this message board right and there was mm-hmm. for folks who don't understand you know or whom might there you had styles like guys on one end, you had style form on the other, but they were both more or less message boards where people could go and communicate, share what they like, upload pictures of stuff. Yeah. People were educating each other on brands and origins and turning uh, folks on to other brands. And then you had this little buying and selling group on there. But eventually you evolve that platform more into, yes, there's, you can still communicate and share pictures of stuff, but like you evolve that platform more as this, I think for many people, this was like the, uh, the knowledge hub of all, you know, avant-garde fashion. Like no one knew like what, what's the Antwerp eight? No one knew, you know, all of these things are like for me. And I think many others, including other folks like Gian Delian, you know, who have researched this stuff really heavily, it, you know, you were the person kind of putting these things together. And like, when did that become the mission for you to, to really communicate this stuff? Um, probably like, well, it was always the mission. The mission was to find like-minded people. That was the first right, mission. Okay. And then the database, the database, the knowledge base sort of grew and grew and grew because this stuff in the beginning tended to attract 
also very passionate people. It was mm-hmm. only it was only a few years in that it sort of became a trend, and a lot of it is because Brick blew up. But there was just a lot of passionate people, and so much of it always was and remains under the radar that it was really like I remember John Galliano dropping like Paul Harden's name to Women's Wear Daily, and then mm-hmm. like everyone like starts scrambling all these you know, fashion girls who've never heard Paul Harden started yeah. scrambling like, well, what is that? And then, you know, they basically got all the info off of styles, I guess, because there's nothing else on the internet. And like a day later, an article on the car comes out that's like pretty much copy and paste from styles, I guess, forums. Um, and it, look, I really can't credit myself. It's a community. A lot of people, sure. a lot of people sure. contributed, which was the amazing thing. So yeah, it's always been about community. Um, and it evolved, thankfully, into a magazine, print, an online magazine, then sort of the Instagram account and now the podcast. So always like shifting, shape shifting in a way, I guess, to keep up with times as well, because mm-hmm. we know, you know, with the exception of Reddit, sort of forum culture is dead. Uh, sadly, although we have Discord now, but yeah. I don't think it will, I'm not sure it will replace. Um, so it, yeah, it, it did become this knowledge base for people and a hub for people to interact. And I thought this was really amazing that, and I met so many people, like I've met friends because of Salzai guys. I've met so many people. It got my, it got me my start as a fashion journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, you know, I remember meeting Recommends for the first time and then just like, and he mentioned styles like guys in magazine interviews. So I plucked up the courage and was like, so you know the styles I guys. <laughs> like that's mine. And he was like, Yeah, I kind of figured. <laughs> so, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, though it's it's really been gratifying yeah and i'm kind of sad that forum culture is that i don't really know how people inter- i mean people interact on instagram i suppose yeah i feel like a lot of it's moved to micro instagram things and not i mean podcasts a little bit but I- Fortunately and unfortunately, it's all like tiny, you know, paragraphs of information yeah. on a square and then followed by a few images, yeah, you it, know, yeah. and now like the TikTok, like I saw some kid trying to explain CCP on TikTok and like trying to explain like the drip sneakers and stuff. And a part of me was really angry at first uh, because I mean, I for me, I still think Carol Christian Paul is like one of the greatest designers ever, but I was like angry. And then I was like, wait a second, I think I might actually be a part of the problem and like someone you know i should be encouraging this person this is great this is this guy's trying to tell people about a great designer and stuff um and i think you know sometimes i get convicted of my own snobbiness which is well i I think what you're trying to do is you because you we feel so passionate about it you don't want it to become a 15 second video right because right okay yeah that's true what can you explain so if you have deep knowledge and understanding and then these tiktok videos they in like they engender so much misinformation it's crazy it's crazy how much misinformation is out there there that is true one of the best things i saw and i said this on a pod too is where um uh, this like TikTok influencer kid um seems seems like a nice guy right I'll just say that but he was like oh and he's like I'm looking at the new Ralph Lauren collection he's like you can tell they were really influenced by rowing boysers this year yeah and exactly that's what it's become I was just like mm, that's <laughs> You know, it's people are like, oh, around. cool. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, the <laughs> it's just like, it's really the other way around. Minus yeah, 45 like, years, here. by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that that is true because there's not really much fact checking on some of that stuff. But anyway, um, I do want to talk to you about some of these these brands that you are getting into and discovering because for many people, they're they're still discovering some of these brands now. Yeah, uh, and Re- rediscovering, with, rediscovering. Yeah, well, for sport. sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, w- what do you think? Uh, you know, is a brand or designer right now that is like still very overlooked? Uh, overlooked. So, in I think so from the small brands that we've been. That I've been championing. I think for form of expression is really overlooked. I think Cohen mm-hmm. makes her tailoring is incredible. Her fabrics are incredible. Her cuts are incredible. She does so much research. Like should be like, hey. Uh, Eugene, like I, because she lives in Italy, she's like, mm-hmm. hey, I found this uh, German pattern making book for men's from 1950s. It can only be shipped to the US. Can you bring it to me to Paris? Like that's Cohen, you know? Right. 
she, she really loves what she does, but she's so, she feels so bad talking about herself. Like she thinks, she thinks like it's so pompous that, you know, she's not out there. Like she's not, she's, mm. you know, like people don't know about her. But her clothes are incredible. Like every time, every time I want to feel like an adult, like I wear formed expression tailoring, which basically coats. For me, tailoring is just coats, <laughs> basically, because I don't wear suits. Um, <laughs> so, so, and and that's a Wall Street trauma. And we can talk about how context cha- changes meaning, which is an article I wrote once. Uh, I'm really traumatized by suits, and I hate them, even though I look great in them. So I never wear them. Not even like avant-garde suits. Not even like you know the the long one button peak lapel stuff, or like like old CCP or mm-hmm. Boris. No, I'll, I'll wear like I'll wear a blazer, but I'll wear them with like black and boots. Like I will never. I don't have a suit in my closet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, but but what about like a sport coat? Well, so wait, what what is what is the average wardrobe? Is it like knitwear and double layer tees? It's a lot of knitwear. It's a lot of denim. And it's a lot of leather. Uh, okay. Yeah, and it's a lot of wool too. But yeah. I mean, I I love. I do love a tailored coat, like a good tailored coat. I see. It's a must. Nothing makes yeah. you look better. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of still, yeah, less leather than I used to wear. But yeah, still good. What are what are the Hall of Fame leather jackets? Uh, for me, it's got to be like the Rick Bauhaus from like older years. Of course, uh-huh. like blistered lamb. Yeah, bl- yeah. Uh, of course, you know CCP scar stitch, CCP fencing yep. those, which I've never owned those. Uh, because CCP doesn't fit me. You have to be tall and skinny. And if you're not, I advise everyone to just suck it up and give up. You don't have to own everything. You know? And that's that's what I've come to realize through like many bad experiments. Like if it's not for you, like I don't own any CCP garments because they're not for me because I'm short, you know, and, and I'm not skinny. So I'm like, this, you know, this guy doesn't design clothes. Um, yeah, I had I had that mistake a few times where I got like the the tornado jeans. So like for folks who don't like Carol Christian Pole and a lot of these other designers, it's not like you have a collection of like, this is my fall collection. You know, a lot of the, the, the models are basically the same. There's a jacket called the, the Scar Stitch jacket, which you should look up. A lot of people think it's one of the greatest leather jackets ever. The big thing about it is on the elbow, um, it's like an inward pleat. So mm-hmm. as you bend your elbow, the jacket actually looks, you know, like perfect and rounded around your elbow. And when you extend your arm straight, the pleat curves back in and then it makes a very clean line. But it's the the leather and everything's always amazing, but it's very, very, very tight and thin. Like you're never going to see the rock or anyone who's got jacked arms wearing yeah. this stuff because it's just skinny, narrow, and they don't, they, I don't, I don't know how these brands work because it's not like they don't really advertise. They don't really do, you know, celebrity styling they don't do any of that stuff it's just yeah. you know a handful of pieces made a year yeah they just but... don't make a lot of money which is <laughs> for some I reason guess... we've all collectively decided that it's a horrible thing <laughs> yeah know? i know right i mean it's it's interesting where some of the i mean it's more of like a japanese mentality in which like you don't need to have you know 100 percent growth every year it's yeah. like you can just flat or have you know single digit growth it's yeah. interesting like I said, you can love what you do for a living and make a living and be fine. Like I don't know. What, <laughs> yeah. We all got this idea in fashion that like, you have to have Paris catwalk shows and make millions and that's success. And it's not like that's one definition of success, but it doesn't have to be. And also the Faustin bargain you make, not worth it, probably. Yeah. Well, let's let's go go on a bit about that real quick. But I, I just I guess I was just influenced by uh, a pod episode I recorded. There's a new docuseries out called Kingdom of Dreams and it's all, mm-hmm. it's about the rise of LVMH and caring on the backs of John Galliano, Alexander McQueen, Mark Jacobs and Tom Ford basically. Mm-hmm. And part of it is like these guys were given everything everything like you know you want a plate of coke and five pokers fine like nobody cares like but in return they had to they had to produce and produce and produce until until they basically in one way or another self-destruct mm. so and you don't have to do that basically <laughs> is what i'm trying to say i think yes right and like these designers you know carol christian paul well look let's let, let's say this also there can today there can be only 
Juan Paul Hart and Juan Carroll Christian Paul, like it's very hard to build a brand like that from scratch today. But you can be a brand and you can be in 20 stores in the world and have a shoestring team and you you make your six figures and you're okay. Right. Yeah, that, that speaks to, you know, because I want to jump, jump back on the leather thing, but I think it, it does speak to how people understand fashion where it's it must be bigger, must be more, must be better. You know, because that's that was the... I remember on Zeitgeist, actually, I was talking about how I, I had just gotten Dior Homme. This is like, I don't know, 2008 or so. It's early on. And I had just gotten a pair of the denim. And I was really into it. And for, for folks who got into Dior Homme denim, you had the 19 centimeter or the 21 centimeter. Correct. And you had the 17 and a half centimeter. But then you had made in Italy and made in Japan. Yeah. And you had to have made in Japan to be like accepted. And I had made in Italy. <laughs> and I got clowned so hard. And I was like, I was like, no, this is this is the best. And everyone was like, no, these are all these other brands that do better denim. And it was like, Rick Owens is better denim that's made in Japan. And, you know, and all mm-hmm. these, these people that were in there. And I was like, well, how come I've never heard on heard about this? And somebody, I don't know who it was, but it was very polite, actually. And they were just like, you only hear about the brands that are, you know, paying millions of dollars to be in your face all day. Exactly. And I was like, oh, shit. Exactly. And it really did open my eyes more to, to where, like, I got into wanting to work to find good brands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, to, to Edis Lehmann's credit, and you cannot take that away from him, Zior sure. Ohm was revolutionary. From 2004, even 2003, Mm -hmm. to like 2008 or so, it was a revolution. This is the guy who, for the first time, he got a GQ guy to care about fashion. This has never happened. And that's, and he was the gateway drug for so many people who later got into like the style zeitgeist stuff. There are a lot of people like you. There were a lot of people who were coming in and like, oh, so there's like Zior Ohm that I started wearing. But then, mm-hmm. oh, look, there's all this other stuff that's even more interesting. Um, and again, like, I think Dior own from 2003 to 2005, like, was untouchable. Um, it was really an amazing period of time. So, but yeah, it was really was a gateway drug. And it really got a lot of, let's say, dudes or guys, however you want to call them, who were interested in fashion, like bona fide fashion for the first time. And like, okay, you know, they bought the sneakers, they bought the denim, but even the idea Mm -hmm. that going from like, from like Hugo Boss to that, that's a leap for most people. It's a massive leap and price and everything. What do you think it was? Like, do you think, I don't, I I don't know who said this, so I apologize. I'm not giving credit. But they were just like, oh, it was because with with Eddie Slimane, it was all about musicians. And because I think at that time, right, like there was also, you know, late 90s, you had like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. You had, you know, like people like me, I'm younger, I'm in school and I'm into fashion. And for me to like fashion, people thought I was gay. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there was like people being afraid of, you know, oh, if you like clothes, that must mean you're not secure in your sexuality. And I mean, all of these things, which now we, we just laugh at. We right, don't even right. bat yeah, an eye we want, towards. Man, we want. Look, <laughs> it took, <Yeah>. us, <laughs> took us decades, but we want. <laughs> but it was just like, um, you know, with your stuff, it was he was all about like punk rock, and yeah. everybody could like punk rock. And so I didn't like fashion. I liked punk rock mm-hmm. and I was into punk rock through this fashion. And I feel like that was some of the the Eddie stuff that that people talk about that he did well. I mean, because obviously he had, there's YSL and all these other things before. But yeah. like the I don't know, like um, I don't know if, if that's if that's the, the truth uh, or not. I, I think it was something much more prosaic and not to pour a bucket of cold water on everything you just no, said. No, please. Um, I really think it was the LVMH marketing machine. For the, ah, for- you're probably right. Right. For the first time, because <laughs> look, the stuff he did at YSL was as good as Dior own. And I mm-hmm. remember the stuff at YSL because I would go in and I'm like, shit, nothing fits me because it's all so skinny. But it was like it was black. It was sleek. Uh, it was very slim. It, it was, He was already doing that. Um, but I think it was, you know, Bernardo who said, OK, we, we got the women's Dior pat down. Why don't we like what's our next revenue stream? Like, Why don't we do Dior own? Because we haven't done Dior own. Like there was no such thing. Yeah, yeah. And and that's why it blew up. Again, not to take away credit from Eddie because the clothes were amazing. Amazingly well made, intricate, incredible quality. Um, not the shit that's now passes for Dior own. It was amazing. <laughs> 
And, and so I think there was a confluence, but I really was, was the marketing machine because, you know, how do you, how do you get the Hugo Boss guy to do our off, right? Like that's, you know, but, but it, but it did happen, which I think is great. I really think it was the beginning of something special. And, you know, I have to give credit to where it's due. And Eddie really did revolutionize, um, menswear and men's fashion. What about the internet also rising and becoming, you know, cause you remember, I think for, for a lot of people too, if you want to find, if you want to buy Dior, wherever you are, say you're in Omaha, Nebraska, you can just go online and buy it. Yeah. You know, like I, I never got to see any of these things. I mean, I, I was born in 85, but I never got to see any of this stuff until I was in New York in person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, none of these brands would sell online. Right. I mean, I feel like it's only the past few years where a lot of these big capital F fashion brands sold online. Um, the, the only way I could get Rick Owens, and this is in New York early on, I think this is before there was like a Rick Owens store, was through buying and selling on Style Zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you didn't want to buy it retail, yeah, yeah, because it was also yeah. it was only I think Atelier carried it and Barney's and maybe maybe Berger had the women's but not the men's. So it was it was it was very rare. Um, and what people also forget, like people like falling like all over rough right now and everything. But why Atelier was important, especially for me, because right before it opened. Pretty much everyone dropped Raph Simons, like Barney's dropped Raph, they dropped Anz Milanister, they dropped Carol Christian Paul. Barney's used the Carol Christian Paul. This was before... I didn't know that. This was before CCP became CCP. This was the phase you find sometimes online, you're like, what is this? Um, you know, <laughs> they had Carpetium. Barney's had Carpetium. Bar- like, people don't that. understand yeah. how avant-garde Barney's was for the department store. Like, at the, you know, you went there every season at the beginning. It was like a temple. Wow. But at some point, they dropped all this stuff. And then, like, if dropped Carol, I think they had Carpetium as well. They dropped that. And so there was really, there was one store in New York that carried Ruff, which you didn't really know very well was called seven was run by someone who later became my friend joseph portana um it was on the lower east side and nothing else mm-hmm. so in a way like and then atelier opens and i was like oh my god it's all like finally like it's all back you know and again like we, we always have this myth that new york is such an avant-garde advanced city in terms of fashion and it's yeah like not really you know there are pockets of that so anyway yeah it was all very very rare very very rare stuff and, and a lot of it was rare on purpose too like they wanted to limit it's this mentality that sort of i think started with come the garçon kind of engendered like like if you want it you're gonna have to work for it mm. um, which we find in our postmodernist society which and like consumer first society we find silly now but i don't mm-hmm. know it was kind of cool yeah yeah what do you what do you think that streetwear took from avant-garde fashion oh well, first and foremost the audience <laughs> <laughs> Okay, go on. <laughs> I mean, there's, there is, uh, like, with the exception of Rick Owens, who has been very successful in straddling the divide, divide between yeah. the avant garde and streetwear, sort of, you know, goth and hip hop. Um, mm-hmm. No one else has really been able to reach that. So I, I guess just new generation came and they, they were listening to new type of music and buying new types of men's fashion. And, uh, yeah, I used to hate it, and now I just don't. I just, I just. It's <laughs> a good attitude. Yeah, I know that a lot for a lot of people. Um, they got into Rick Owens and Raph through ASAP Rocky. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Which you know, I mean, he literally had it in. I think his mixtape. You yeah. know, Raph Simmons, Rick Owens, what I'm dressed in. Um, and I that was huge for, for so many folks. I mean, I remember when Grailed had first started, they were all hip hop dudes that were getting into it was it was really like early, it was Raph, it was Rick, and I think stuff like Boris and a few of these other, you know, Cloak was already gone yeah. before you know, this had happened. Uh, and Geller, some of the Geller stuff was there, but I don't even know if, what Robert Geller's doing right now. I think he's still uh, designing. I don't know if he's still producing his label. I don't think so. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was, it was interesting to see that. And I feel like all of that has come somewhat mainstream, except, yeah, some of these other brands that you were yeah. mentioning or, or stuff like Shrewly Wrecked and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, he's still an unbelievable, he is, incredible. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, designer. Yeah. And I mean, look, really, like, there's only one business model right now right it's 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 called put it on the wrapper right 
this is the only, like for fashion, it's the only way. You know, you make something, you put it on the wrapper, it blows up, right? Put it on a wrapper or put it on a celebrity? I guess for menswear, put it on the wrapper. You know, yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, with the exception, yeah, I guess there's like Harry Styles or whatever. Uh, I don't know. But those guys care. are are now in, in a good way. I mean, in some ways I'm glad, but in other ways, you know, you're kind of like, huh, where, you know, Harry Styles was doing all this stuff for Gucci and obviously that's gone now, but now he has his own, like the, the way that a musician would get bigger than the label and then get their own label within the label, yeah. people would call it like an imprint. Now you're having like the version of an imprint with a fashion label. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, and th- this is because they could make more money doing this. You know, Rihanna makes, you know, was making more of her money off of, you know, Fenty and, and clothing and, and makeup, not not her music. She she's she never she doesn't even own all of her music. So you have all these musicians and all these other people that are doing it and realizing that they're they're the new levels of celebrities. So they just start their own clothing brands instead of just or you get paid tons of money. I remember I dressed a celebrity once for um, the Oscars and I had picked out these things and they were like, oh, we're contracted to wear blank and blank brand. Right. And they they could only wear two different things. But it was they were getting paid, you know, close to half a million dollars to wear this brand. Yeah. And you're just like, and I think that's the tough part where like, if there's not things like Zeitgeist, like where do you think people can genuinely discover new things that are almost untainted by the machine, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I mean, it's, it's have to be independent guys, you know, guys like you, guys like me uh independent fashion media that's and that's the big problem in new york we don't have independent fashion media whereas for example like in london there's a lot of independent fashion media and people are wondering like why all the best talent is coming out of london and it's not because they have some magic formula over there or something in the water supply it's because they have a system that champions uh, young designers and in new york we don't like it's all like it's all so commercial mm. i remember like first season of craig green like tim blanks came up to me before a fashion show and he said eugene there's like there's this guy craig green you should go check him out i think you will like it like imagine here like kathy Horan coming to me <laughs> and saying like oh there's a cool young brand like this would not happen in a million years you know what i mean right but there, like the great tim blanks you know keeps his ear to the ground and spreading the word that there's like young cool London talent um, and so yeah, I think we need independent fashion media and I guess we have it but we have we don't have it we have it only in the sense that there are people out there who have an Instagram account or a TikTok right. or a podcast and whatnot and sort of like it continues to be self-produced which is which is great but it's not enough you know it's it's not going to make an ecosystem uh, where where independent talent can thrive so I really don't know where people get it but i also feel like most people don't care well i think there's a combination of of apathy and also the fact that everyone's attention span has been so diluted right where like when you think about at least for me and this isn't i'm not trying to get all member berry on this episode but like you know a magazine article a three-page photo editorial that would live you know forever exactly. in my head and I would cut it out and I would put it on my wall and now a new brand you know a new any of that stuff it's on Instagram and I get maybe three to five seconds to interact with it I'm limited to that platform and then it's gone and so yeah. I feel bad because you know a friend of mine great designer he's trying to make noise he's trying to figure out what he's doing and he's like I have to pay all this money to just get the attention you 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 know you can't even have good product you need to have good money marketing. Yeah. And that's the tough stuff where, you know, all these these brands that you're talking about, I mean, they're all, you know, most of them are in their 60s or some that are mm-hmm. designing, you know, it, it, except a select few because they have legacy that they can lean on where it's like these new ones like well what's the messaging and the marketing strategy that they have to push just to hold the attention to show that their stuff is as good as it already is when they made it yeah exactly exactly no i really don't know what the solution is i feel like it's all about i've come to hate the word community because every brand wants a community (laughs) but it really is yeah brands that all have discords now yeah Don't get me started. Yeah. Uh, but I really think it's about building community and spreading spreading the word through the community. But I don't I really don't know. Because also stores don't take chances anymore. That's also true. And that's another thing that used to be uh again, like to go back like to Barney's like imagine a department. 
department store buying uh, Carol Christian Poe or whatever. Like it's it's crazy to think now that any department store would take a chance, right? Uh, because everything is so measured, uh, mm-hmm. everything is so managed, everything is so efficient and maximized. Like, and there has to be room for error because we're not selling laundry detergent, right? <laughs> I guess, you know, we're not Unilever and we are, sure. you know, why I love fashion <laughs> and I don't love like other things that can be considered materialistic is that because fashion has this inevitable creative component like it's more that and i like i re, i still i hate people who say just fashion is just a business because it's not like people people put their creativity into it people put their soul into it uh mm-hmm. people there there's there's that human element and there's a cultural component which is what i love about fashion most right it's it's really the cultural component that that it contributes aesthetically and it makes meaning in a certain way like which is something i can derive you know like from say like swiss watches right okay. like you know watches are beautiful and they're great and i respect the craftsmanship etc cetera, etc cetera, but i'm like i have one i'm like i'm one and done like there is not enough for me to dig into the technical aspect of it and the craftsmanship aspect of it to pique my curiosity enough whereas with fashion the creativity the cultural component right the way it speaks with music and art uh and society at large that that is the juice for me you know so like you mm. so like i think in menswear there are immense where there are product guys and they're fashion guys right mm-hmm. and and it's very ra- and i do both and you do both and it's very rare that you find people who do both so people are either into like rick and rough craig green or whatnot and that's a, so that's the fashion part like that's the storytelling that's uh designed first etc cetera, et cetera, right and then there are product guys who are like into Japanese denim workwear and for them it's more about the garment rather than the overarching idea of say a collection and right and I love both like I love geeking out on you know on fabrics and construction and so on because in our plastic world I think it's increasingly precious and worth preserving mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be enough for me to keep my interest in clothes right does that make sense yeah I mean no it makes perfect sense and I think it's also not a dig at watch guys. <laughs> I know, I know, no, you no, have no, a big, no. I know you have a big following in in that, um, you know. But like, I have one watch, and I, it's something that I've wanted for over twenty years, and I love it. What is that? A big pilot? Yeah, it's it's a chrono. That... It's an IWC chronograph, and yeah, it's a, it looks like that. Yeah. It's a watch I've wanted since like nineteen ninety nine, and I never had enough money, and my like immigrant heart would just start racing every time I even thought of dropping so much on the watch. And it would be, you're insane. Um, uh, you know, put money away instead. But like two years, I finally did it. And I was like, if it's something you've wanted for 20 years, probably you should get it. And but it's like one and done. You know, I, I like I don't go researching, etc. And I love it to death. And I hope I have it for the rest of my life. So, you know, for me, it's not like it's not enough to go dig it. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think at the same time, it's it's about your relationship with something. And what you just said, you didn't like the fact that you backed up your watch purchase where you explained this memory and this joy and this journey and why it was important to you, you in a way, you know, because you had, you had almost like, you know, apologized, like you had made an attack on the watch person, but your story you just made made you a watch person, right? Because at the end of the day, it's, it's an emotional connection that we have at these. Yeah, things. yeah. Well, one hundred percent. Because there's a lot of people, you know, who have the emotional connection. Like I have an emotional connection with watches, but I detest the industry. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Same with fashion for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I love fashion. I love clothes. I love. I love designers. I love art. I love that. But I do. I do hate the machine that mm-hmm. has been created. I. I obviously I don't like the waste. I don't like any of these things. But at the end of the day, what I want to champion is art and I want to champion the the younger person or older person who's searching for their identity and they discover it through clothes. They discover that they can alter, you know, a past that they had, that they came from, um, to become accepted into a new future. I mean, God, that sounds so tacky. You can punch me digitally right now. But like, I mean, it's that, that is for me why I love this stuff so much. Yeah, 100%. Um, That's what gives it meaning. Otherwise, it's just garments. Like, otherwise... Well, let's... I mean, I do, I do want to end on a higher note here, but what is it that you think now exists 
that makes this whole industry better? Because obviously there's a lot of stuff that exists now that we were kind of like, eh. <laughs> but I think it's what we started with. I think it's the internet. I think it's the right. ability to bypass the gatekeeping system mm, of, okay. of fashion media um, and, and the ability to find like-minded individuals through a space that's not mediated. And I think that's that's been the game changer. Unfortunately, as always happens, you know, corporate forces <laughs> clamp down on it hard. And yeah, now it's like, I don't know what the fuck is not sponsored out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, like sure. Everything's, but yeah, the, the ability to find community, the ability to create your own label and not have to genuflect to Vogue, but but sort of to try your own way and mm -hmm. sell direct to consumers. I, I think that's great. Uh, and I think that's been the game changer. And like Styles Like Guys was that and still is that. Yeah. Um, there will always be people who are passionate, who are want to know more, who are, who are driven, who are intellectually curious. Um, that's not going to go away. I mean, we can harp on the impoverishment of culture all day long, which is what I do in my spare time. <laughs> but, but there will always be those people. And, and that's, and this is why I write. I write for those mm. people like i don't like this is my audience like i write for them mm. so so that's been like the only that's been the only bright spot uh look i mean again i i'm an immigrant kid not a kid anymore adult, but i came as an immigrant kid uh i had no connections um i don't go to the right parties um i'm not like exceptionally good looking all i have is my talent uh and the fact that i've been able to make it without going through like conde nest <laughs> there was no way i would have been able to do this 20 years ago, you know what i mean sure so i think that's that that's really been the game changer and that really has made and it really has enriched fashion and made it more uh yeah it's, it, it it has enriched fashion made it more rounded more interesting uh everyone can find the tribe now so i think that that's been the net positive yeah no i agree with that i think also the other silver lining is is you know previously for me the only way i could acquire any of these brands that i loved was was through buying and selling forums yeah right i mean and like zeitgeist had that and obviously you have grailed you have a few other things now where people can buy and sell these things and also I mean, look, I want to say that it does make some of the commerce a little bit more ethical. And the fact that, you know, I remember there was a story of a old uh, nom de guerre jacket that I had that I, you know, sold to one person, they sold it to another person. And it can't, it basically made the rounds of like all of our friends. Yeah. And I was like, that's amazing. You know, like this jacket got to live on and all these people have owned it and wore it and it's great. And, you know, it, it lets the brand live on. And also there's many people uh, like myself at the time that have never had the money to buy these things at retail. Yeah. I think like a scar stitch is like still seven or eight grand. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so much. And I, you know, um, I, th I remember I got mine from, uh, from a dude in Berlin off of Zeitgeist. It was still a ton, but I think I got it for like less than three, which mm -hmm. again is still an absurd amount of money. Uh, but you know, it, it, the internet made these things more affordable. And when you get to own and enjoy them, you know, and obviously I sold that. I don't have any more. I, right. I couldn't fit in that thing to save my life. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, that, that's been a, a fun thing. And, and, and so knowing that, like, okay, maybe there is some kid in somewhere in another state or another country or whatever that gets to buy these things that doesn't have, you know, a local retailer yeah. or whatever. And it's not going to be a person who's going to buy it on a website and return it in 10 days. Yeah, exactly. No, this, this, this really is true. The secondhand market, it really is an amazing thing when it's done right. And I think yeah. actually Grail has killed a lot of joy. Um, from that but, <laughs> but i just did an archival sale um in tribeca with my friend l oh yeah l used to run number nine so he has a huge number nine archive and we did the sale wow. together where i brought stuff from my closet and he pulled out like 500 pieces from his number nine archive um and we did it for the weekend and we had so much fun like all these young kids did you guys clean up in. fuck yeah <laughs> yeah it, it was it was it, it was 
crazy. Like I did not expect it. But it was young kids who are now really like discovering these brands and understanding mm-hmm. like, oh my God, fashion was so much better. Like, and this is for myself. Like all I want to wear right now is like vintage number nine because it's so well made and it's held up so well. And like in terms of cut, it looks so modern. It's like 15 years past and like nothing happened. And it's uh, incredible quality, incredible cut. And like that's so like I've been buying stuff slowly, like from Japan. And it's 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 really great. And I'm and I'm so happy to see young kids rediscovering that. And it was like that sale was so life affirming for me. Um it, it was really cool. Well, it's interesting you mentioned a lot of number nine, but I don't no no love for the soloist. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of soloists. My closet is like basically five brands, you know, like I'm a uniform, <laughs> I'm a uniform dresser. Like it's okay. it's always a variation on one outfit, more or less. Oh yeah, so I yeah, I have of course. I mean Taka is amazing. He's you know, I'm proud to call him a friend. He's an amazing guy and just incredibly talented it's incredible yeah I had some soloist stuff that was very very tight on me and obviously now no way it would fit me yeah well good news is he's gone oversized big time <laughs> well I don't hopefully that'll still fit me I'm like you know but yeah I mean that some of that stuff's amazing um what was it Stephen Mann and the non-place I mean he was always dripped out mm-hmm. and uh yeah yeah. Soloist stuff and yeah. and obviously number nine. Yeah, he was one of the one of the the one of the stuff I guess originally. Yeah, he was he was very early on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had I had bought Visvim off of him from SZ like pretty early on. I mean, that, seriously, like th- that was where I bought most of my stuff was mm-hmm. from the forums there. Yeah. Um. I mean, and this was when I was you know on Norfolk Street in the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that like that stuff was right outside my door, but I, I obviously couldn't afford it. Yeah. You know. Um. So and that Invisvim didn't exist in 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 the U.S. Right. really at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that is the beautiful thing that secondary market allows you to yeah. make the clothes somewhat affordable. Of course, now there is so much speculation. Uh, reselling and all that it's kind of yucky but for sure right it's been and that's also what people don't understand it's of course you have to really be in it but if you buy great clothes pay good money for it wear it and send it on to someone and recoup that money you really haven't spent all that much as opposed to buying fashion and just keep throwing that shit out i'm sure you've also had like garments where i'm like sometimes like i've made money on stuff i've worn for years (laughs) like oh that was a good investment yeah there's a there's a lot of stuff that i do i reg- well because for me sometimes even the hassle of taking it and putting it on a message board pre-grailed and even on grailed right like i would i just don't even want to deal and so i would give it away or i would mm. you know a friend would come over and be like yeah sure just take it or whatever it was or and then i would find out they would sell it and flip it and i would be like <laughs> motherfucker yeah that's that's fucked up that's fucked up yeah i was like i yeah but anyway yeah i mean it's it's true you there's stuff that where yeah if, if you have if you have old raft old, especially all of a sudden like all well i mean not all of a sudden but all the people who had saved old helmet lang that oh. stuff's still worth a fortune oh i mean jeezily yeah. i still have a couple of pieces where i'm like <laughs> that will probably go to the fashion i don't know yeah right i mean that's that's still something i would love to see in new york mm. Yeah, I still wear it. I, I have my helmet lying, um, the cashmere hoodie with the horse hair mane on the hood. Oh, and there wow. are probably like 10 of them made ever. Um, and I have one. There's like one picture of Elijah Wood wearing it out there. And it's like people people who are into helmet, quote unquote, right now, they, they don't even know probably that it exists. And that probably costs a fortune, right? But I wear it. I wear it in New York. I wear it in the street. Wow. Yeah, I know that Bruce Pask still, he's got, you know, it's, made, I don't know, 15 years or something old now his helmet laying yeah, yeah, his denim, uh, denim yeah, jacket yeah. that he still wears. <laughs> yeah. I, which is great. I know. I mean, yeah. and, and it always looks modern, wearing it. right? It looks really modern. Yeah. Yeah. Tough, tough to beat. Um, well, this was great. Eugene, thank you. Thank you so much for, for chatting. Um, there's obviously we'll have to do some sort of part two or something sometime because there's just so much other stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 No, it's uh, my pleasure. And uh, Jeremy, it's, it's always great to chat to you. I'm glad we, I'm glad I finally met you in New York. And, yeah. Uh, hope. Hope yeah. To chat more. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, man. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal, and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, share the pod. Tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I don't know, post it on LinkedIn if you want. Follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. 
at Blamo Podcast. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at blamopod.com. If you want to hang with us, hear the solo pods, hear this bonus, the bonus pods, the extra episodes, what all that stuff is, join us at patreon.com forward slash blamo. It's where we got all the it's where we got all the other goods and our amazing Slack community. All right, everybody. See you soon. <laughs>